When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I first heard that from J.P. Moreland, where he said, you know, philosophy suffers from a public relations problem today, right? You don't have to be convinced that people are struggling to see the relevance of philosophy to human life, right? To connecting up to matters of ultimate human concern, matters about meaning and purpose and value. Uh, how should I orient and order my life? That kind of thing. So when people view philosophy, depending on the tradition you're coming from, and as, as I said earlier, I'm an analytic philosopher and I won't, I don't in the book, I don't dog analytic philosophy when it's seen as part of a way of life, right? A philosophical way of life. The use of reason to analyze, clarify, to show coherence, to test her coherence, to gain truth and understanding about the world, as well as it's being instrumentally valuable in the theological task. Analytic philosophy is both intrinsically valuable and instrumentally valuable, but, you know, situating it within a larger normative framework about who are we as human creatures, as I say in the book, meaning-seeking animals, right? Yeah, How are we made? How has God so constituted us? What sort of natural capacities has he given us? The fulfillment of which constitute our flourishing. How are we made? What is the human being? What is our human vocation? What are we for? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is another very, very special one. I have with me Dr. Ross Inman, and we're going to be talking about his brand new book, Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life, An Invitation to Wonder. This is really exciting for me because, as you, the audience, will know, I've been going all over the map on meta-philosophical questions, even you know whether or not that is uh, meta or if that's well within the realm of philosophy itself philosophical method, what is the nature of philosophy, who counts as a philosopher, all that good stuff. And today we're going to be talking about Christian philosophy as a way of life. So philosophy as a way of life, and then how do you do that as a Christian? Dr. Inman's book is really fun. We read portions of it for uh, a public philosophy class I had at Palm Beach Atlantic, which is really cool as well. So I got a little inside scoop. I'm, I've been chewing on it for a little bit. Uh, before we jump in, though, I want, to make it, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon or YouTube members. If you guys like this show, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or YouTube member. There's different perks at different levels of support. Everything helps. And I want to give a shout out to the sponsor for this video, Field Notes. Field Notes is awesome. I love these guys. I take all my Parker's Pensies question uh, notes for my guest. I take those on this Field Notes 64-page uh, Midnight Black, I think. You can find the a link to this in the show notes and also they've got these really cool um, foiled again series notes i love these I'm, i got something special cooking on this but for a limited time you guys can get 10 percent off your entire order at field notes by going to the link in the description and using promo code parker notes at checkout so go and do that support the pod and get some good stuff for 10 percent off awesome all right that's enough commodification let's talk about philosophy and uh, Christian philosophy as a way of life with Dr. Ross Inman. 
Dr. Renman, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Parker, it is great. It's great to see you again, man. I was just happy to be here. Yeah, this is great. I was just thinking the other day how much fun we had talking uh, different patterns of sport coats last time we were together at EPS. (laughs) (laughs) Window panes and all sorts of different stuff, man. those, Those were good times. I love it, man. The the most I love that we 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 prize and cherish the finer things in life. That's right. And uh, in in the philo- on the philosophy side of the Evangelical Theological Society, they don't always they don't always care about that. The the theologians I've noticed, man, they are all if it's not tweed, it doesn't matter. It's got to be tweed. It's, but uh, so I, I do I do like that we share that together. the The book is fantastic. So thanks for for sending that my way. Before uh, we get into the nitty gritty, I want to just ask, like, how how'd this project come about? Do you just can you recall that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I I teach uh, I teach here at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, so I'm I'm a seminary professor. So um, most of my students that I have the p- privilege of teaching are uh, ministry oriented, uh, ministry minded. They are. Um, seeking some sort of ministry, whether full-time, uh, vocationally, or uh, or just an, as an active part of their life, uh, service in the local church. So I'm constantly getting, um, getting the question raised in my uh, intro to philosophy classes, uh, both at the college and the seminary level. In the world, uh, does philosophy have to do with my life, right? What does philosophy have to do with Christian living? What does philosophy have to do with Christian ministry and discipleship. And uh, so, you know, you can't, you can't be a contemporary Christian philosopher without, to some degree or other, having some sort of answer to this question, mm. right? Yeah. So um, I remember the first time, you know, my in-laws asked me this question when I told them I was interested in studying philosophy and marrying their daughter. And they, they <laughs> oh, the questions began to come, like, what, what does this mean for, does this make money? You know what I mean? Uh, and so... It's a question I've been chewing on, and it's been really close to my heart. It's a it's a really meaningful question. It's a question I think we um, should think deeply about as Christian philosophers. And uh, and I think there's just there's a lot of richness to the question. There's a lot of facets to the question that um, I think Scripture has quite a bit to say uh, about the question as well, uh, and the Christian tradition as well. So I, I, uh, this actually started, uh, as a, an introduction, an introductory chapter, uh, obviously in chapter form to another book I've, I've written on, uh, like an introduction to metaphysics mm-hmm. and for Christians, a Christian introduction to metaphysics. And so, uh, I was assigning this in some of my classes just to get some feedback from my students and, um, you know, the students came back and they said that we found this first chapter extremely helpful. And I, we wish we had read this mm. when we were first starting to study philosophy, you know, and I think the Lord just put a seed in my mind at that point. Hey, maybe this would be helpful to people to, you know, some of this down in book form to be able to hand to people that philosophy is one of the most practical things you can devote yourself to mm-hmm. uh, when understood broadly uh, in the sense that I'm trying to argue for in the book. So that's a little bit about how, how the book started. Um, and it was a joy to write. I'll be honest. It was a really fun book to write. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just, uh, as I tell people, it's, it's a book that really captures my vocational heartbeat really well, why I do what I do in life. Um, 
And so, yeah, man, that's a little bit about how the, uh, the book got started. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, one of the, so we read a couple chapters and one was uh, Wonder as the Lifeblood of Philosophy. We had a really good conversation as a class on just going back and forth on, on does, should everyone have to wonder? And, and what is, what does it, what does that mean? I, I came around to, you know, I was playing devil's advocate and arguing against that point, but in doing so, I, I felt like that is a really good, uh, at least characterization of philosophy. That wonder is the lifeblood of philosophy. It starts in wonder. And it, and I, that's from Plato, I think, right? Yeah. So the idea of the, the wonder philosophy connection, as I put it yeah. in the book that, you know, philosophy begins and is sustained and culminates in, in wonder, sort of wonder from beginning to end. It's a very, very classical notion, both uh, Christian and non-Christian, although it predates the Christian tradition, this idea of wonder being the what I'm calling the lifeblood of philosophy, yeah. uh, to sort of borrow some language from uh, Herman Bobbing, uh, that it really does. It starts in, in Plato. We find it uh, in the Christian tradition and thinkers like Aquinas uh, and beyond. But yeah, it is a very big part of, uh, a very, very big part of a cl more classically oriented view of, of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I like, I appreciate that because there's been so much debate on whether or not uh, the etymological definition, you know, or the etymology of philosophy really does capture uh, the broad tradition and scope, you know, the love of wisdom. And, you know, you can just like kind of sidestep that a little bit by saying, well, let's talk about wonder because do modern analytic philosophers, do they, is it wonder that's driving uh, their questions? It seems like it to me, you know, even like, does it, does it capture a lot of the continental stuff? Yeah. Like I wonder X, Y, or Z. So let me go spend some time on that. Um, but maybe you, you are an analytic philosopher yourself. Um, is there some technical definition of wonder that we need to work with? Or what do we mean, I guess? Uh, what, can, you, can you characterize wonder for us that starts this all process? Awesome. Great question. And I think that's the question that originally provoked me to further inquiry, right? That got me wondering about wonder, right? I mean, yeah. you read about how central wonder is to the examined life, right? In antiquity and in the Christian tradition. Um, and... You know, it was actually largely the work of some of my other friends in psychology that tipped me off to. There's some been some really fascinating contemporary work probably in the last 15 years in the psychological sciences about the nature of wonder or or awe. Right. So I try to I try to introduce some of that literature in the first chapter, an invitation uh, to wonder, and just trying to draw on some of our best psychological science to actually like fill out the content of what is it to wonder, right? This is a uniquely human experience. It's a pervasive experience. I even mentioned people are paying a lot of money to chase experiences of awe <laughs> and wonder, right? Um, and I, I cite the example of space tourism, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, wonder is, is just is fundamentally human experience that at least according to one leading proposal, and I'm, I'm attracted to this proposal, it involves uh, two things, perceived vastness mm -hmm. and a need for accommodation, right? So this idea of uh, we perceive something as being uh, beyond our current conceptual categories, right? So the vastness doesn't necessarily have to do with like physical size. 
-hmm. it can involve like theoretical complexity or um, conceptual uh, detail or conceptual magnitude, right? When you're, when you're in, when you experience something, an idea or, or a physical object like the Grand Canyon, um, you, you're quickly realize the limitation of your current conceptual apparatus, basically your current conceptual framework to sort of situate and locate the, the said object in question or the idea in question, right? Yeah. So that would be the idea of a perceived vastness. So there's something that's much bigger, quote unquote, bigger than the way that I currently grasp the world, or it's more complex than I currently grasp the world, right? Uh, that leads to the second thing, this need for accommodation, right? There's mm -hmm. some sense in which, you know, my, that's why we call it mind blowing, right? These experiences mm -hmm. of awe and wonder, right? Um, my conceptual categories are just too inadequate to the way things truly are, right? Whether that's about God or the natural world or some philosophical idea about the mm -hmm. nature of human beings or the nature of time or the nature of justice or, or whatnot. Uh, so at least according to one leading proposal, awe or wonder, the psychology of our wonder involves both of those aspects, right? And there are, of course, certain awe elicitors uh, in the literature, that's what they're called, um, spiritual experiences, religious experiences, uh, nature, the natural world is one of the most significant awe elicitors, according to current researchers. But I argue in the book, philosophy, and this is, again, I'm trying to connect wonder, the best contemporary psychological research on wonder, to this more classical idea in, in Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas, that wonder is the beginning, and Heidegger, the beginning, the middle, and the end of philosophy. It's what propels and initially jumpstarts the philosophical life. It's what sustains it. It's not like you like leave it behind yeah. once you start doing philosophy. It's at least when it's done properly, it's supposed to be ordered and sustained uh, by wonder, and it culminates in wonder as well. And so I want to argue specifically for the Christian philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. um, wonder should be a, a natural posture uh, for us in the world as we, as we navigate these conceptual issues. So, um, yeah, I, I, there's, there's more to say about that, but that's initial pass on what is wonder? Why is it a uniquely human experience in response to the world? But I th I'd say the main thing is that it, it reminds us when we experience wonder, reminds us, Parker, that we, uh, that there are things that are much bigger and more complex about reality that we are, uh, we are currently aware of. Right. And, yeah. and it, and it has this sort of, as, as researchers say, it has this small self effect. Right. It makes it puts us in our proper place. Right. Anyone who's visited the Grand Canyon or even, you know, has witnessed the birth of a child uh, will experience uh, the small self effect. Right. Um, and it, it, it's a sort of self transcendent emotion. Some other researchers have called wonder. It sort of pulls you out of the small confines of your own self and sort of puts you in the larger metaphysical and moral orbit of reality that. There are, there are bigger goods and truths and, and aspects of reality that uh, I'm bumping into here. And, yeah. and awe, awe and wonder, in, in effect, is, a, is an, a response to those things, mm -hmm. like what is truly good and real about 
the world, we uh, we tend to elicit tend to elicit in us wonder or awe. And so, I, what I'm trying to do in that in that those first two chapters is try to make that wonder philosophy connection. Right, philosophizing mm-hmm. is one of these traditional ways that we respond to the world and try to fit ourselves into the world and make sense of the world. Yeah. I, I, I have come around to really liking this picture. And the reason I, I initially had some resistance to it was because I thought, I thought that was theology's realm. And I thought philosophy was a bunch of tools for helping me get clear on things. And I kind of bought into like this, um, a certain type of picture of philosophy, a certain type of analytic picture of philosophy that it's, yeah. it's conceptual analysis or something like that. And, and that's great. You know, I like, we, we talked off air. We, we enjoy the analytics as well, but I, I had a, a impoverished view of philosophy until I read Thomas Nagel's the view from nowhere. And I, in my head, I was really focused on apologetics and I was focused on postmodernism and, and modernism. And, uh, I started reading Nagel and he's like, Hey, look, uh, reality is more than objective reality because you have all these little pockets of subjective reality, you and me and all these little, I can never see from your perspective. And I knew that stuff, but him saying that exploded everything for me. Cause I was kind of stuck in like a modernist frame, trying to find this objective. It's those darn postmoderns. Right. And Nagel wasn't an apologist for them. He was just saying this view from nowhere is not something that you and I can get. And reality is more than objective reality. And that's when I, it exploded for me and I realized how cool philosophy was. And I realized like I, I can, sometimes I just sit around and think about that. I'm like, reality is more than objective reality. It's not just subjective, right? But the, how do you even wrap your head around that? And that causes me to reflect on God and then into omnisubjectivity with, you know, Zagzebski and stuff. And um, that's, that's when it first hit me. And then you have done us a service in giving us some terminology to, you know, some, some more tools, but in order to, they're coat hangers to hang these, these kind of concepts on. So I've, I've really enjoyed that. And I want to share that with my audience. Some of the tools and some of the language that you've brought into the conversation would include like world pictures or existential maps. Um, can, can you broach those for us? Can you lay those out? What, what are those things and what, what work are they doing for us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So maybe it would be helpful to just mention, as I mentioned Briefly throughout the book, uh, and this gets to what you just said about um, the way that philosophy is perceived, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today, I call it, uh, you know, philosophy's public relations problem. Right? <laughs> I, I first heard that from J.P. Moreland, where he said, you know, philosophy suffers from uh, a public relations problem today, right? And, you know, it's, you don't have to be convinced that people are struggling to see the relevance of philosophy to human life, right? To connecting up to matters of ultimate human concern, um, matters about meaning and purpose and value. Uh, how should I orient and order my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. So when people view philosophy, depending on the tradition you're coming from, and you know, I, as, as I said earlier, I, I, I have no, I'm an analytic philosopher. I have no intent on, and I won't, I don't in the book, I don't dog analytic philosophy. Um, yeah when it's, you know, when it's seen as part of a way of life, right? A philosophical way of life, the use of uh, reason to analyze, clarify, uh, to show coherence, to test her coherence, uh, to, to be used 
uh, to gain truth and understanding about the world, as well as it's being instrumentally valuable in the theological task. Yeah. These are all, so I think philosophy in that sense is both analytic philosophy is both intrinsically valuable and instrumentally valuable, but, you know, situating it within a larger normative framework about who are we as human creatures, as I say in the book, meaning seeking animals, right? Yeah, How are we made? How has God so constituted us? What sort of natural capacities has he given us? The fulfillment of which, you know, constitute our flourishing uh, in, in life. Um, how are we made? How, what's, what is the human being? Uh, what is our human vocation? What are we for, right? And when you situate philosophy, even analytic philosophy within that larger, even theological, but also moral framework, mm -hmm. um, you're sort of thickening out um, analytic philosophy as normally as normally practiced, right? So mm -hmm. I, I don't know of any, you know, respectable Christian analytic philosophers who would, you know, denigrate or or minimize the importance of seeing philosophy more holistically. But it just tends to be a matter of emphasis. We don't often emphasize these things, at least in Christian philosophical circles, or at least mm -hmm. analytics don't often emphasize these things. So this is more of a matter of emphasis, not an exclusion, right? So yeah. that's why I just be super clear on that. So yeah, so philosophy has got a public relations problem. Uh, gosh, this is so evident. Um, uh, we could cite cultural example after cultural example, but um, you know, I just think of uh, Marco Rubio's uh, oh, man. 2015 when when he said something like no it was a remark in 2015 where he said you know welders make more money than philosophers we need more welders and less philosophers right yeah yeah uh, problem of relevance parker we, we're just wondering are our philosophers just relics of a bygone era right when mm -hmm. they come out of their cave and they they teach a lecture on plato's forms right and then they kind of go back into their little cave of books and uh, they're not really in tune with the world and with human life, right? It's a rather cartoonish conception, but unfortunately, it's one that I think is pretty deeply entrenched in the public imagination, as well as the Christian imagination as well. So um, the, the, the point of at least the first part of the book, which I'd say the book has really two main parts. The first is to try to introduce people to a more... Uh, a, a more holistic view of philosophy as a way of life, right? Specifically Christian philosophy as a, a truth oriented way of being in the world that is uh, driven and sustained by wonder. Right? And so the first part of the book is just an attempt to illustrate or to introduce readers at a very introductory level, that concept, right? Mm. Let them know there's a, there's an older way of viewing philosophy that might be helpful with the relevance or public relations problem. Um, and so uh, the, the idea of philosophy in antiquity, uh, both among non-Christians, we're talking like Roman, uh, Greek, Hellenistic philosophers, as well as um, Christian philosophers in antiquity, um, was, was thought to be therapeutic, right? So yeah. Arthur Nussbaum, calls this the medical model of philosophizing. It was so pervasive in antiquity that philosophy had something to do with therapy. Now we talk about therapy today and we talk about therapeutic, our minds initially go to like just feeling better about yourself or something like that. Yeah. But it was a deeply objective notion that, you know, a therapy of the passions or a therapy of the soul uh, helped 
increase the, 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 the health and integrity and clarity of the soul so that it can see reality properly. Uh, and it can actually lay hold of real of the good by, by way of philosophy so that one might live well. Right. So it was for the sake of living well, hmm. only seeing, being able to take hold of the good so that one might live well. So the idea of like the intellect, the will, and one's actions were like seamlessly integrated under this banner of philosophy as therapeutic. Right. So, uh, Living philosophically for these for these ancients, uh, as well as for some of the medieval philosophers that talk about the book, was considered to be health giving, right? It was actually life giving. It it helped one master irrational and for these Christian philosophers, uh, sinful passions of the flesh. It helped them put the, put those passions in their proper place, so that one can truly live well uh, in Christ, right? So this idea of um living philosophically in antiquity was a whole lot way of being in the world, right? It wasn't kind of a moment. It wasn't like one stepped into a lecture hall and lived philosophically for 45 minutes yeah. and left the lecture hall and you were kind of done with the philosophy thing. For these thinkers, you know, philosophy was, was a, an all pervasive thing that was humming in the background and, and mostly in the foreground of one's life, right? Mm-hmm. It involved like, wh- what is the highest good to which one chooses to order one's life? Was it pleasure? Um, was it, uh, was it ataraxia? Was it peace? Was it, uh, what, you know, depending on the, the certain philosophical school mm-hmm. uh, would fill in that answer differently. But for these ancients, Parker, they had a whole conception of philosophy involving even spiritual exercises mm-hmm. that I've yeah. been in the book, that's that's yep. Pierre always pointed that out that uh, the philosophical way of life in antiquity just involved as part of an essential ingredient of living philosophically exercises like uh, reading, thorough research, uh, careful attention, listening, Socratic dialogue, even memorization, and even communal exercises like friendship. That was something that yeah. was actually vital for the ancients to properly see and to live along the grain of reality actually required certain kinds of friends. And that's just a concept that uh, is largely very foreign uh, to the philosophical life today. And so the idea of existential map, right? You went, you went there. So what I, what I do in, what I do in one of the chapters in the book is I try to say, I borrow heavily from uh, Caleb Coho and Stephen Grimm's work on filling out the concept of what is philosophy as a way of life, right? Rather than just a moment, what is philosophy as a way of life? If we're going to sort of reject, which I think we should, this very narrow, confined view of philosophy as just sort of like uh, strengthening one, one's rational grasp on the world or right. the use of reason to get at the truth, uh, if we're going to sort of, I, I say, go for a more working class view of philosophy that's more pervasive, it touches every aspect and rhythm of one's life, right? That involves a moral dimension. There are certain moral and spiritual preconditions that one need that need to be in place before one can actually use reason in a way that's actually helpful and and beneficial to to seeing reality as it as it truly is. And so, so Coho and Grimm. 
give uh, a nice little taxonomy, and I think it's extremely helpful that I borrow uh, from them. And the first one is uh, you, you commit to an existential map, right? Yeah. And, and by that, this is just um, uh, a view of what is and what ought to be, right? A view of reality, as well as both uh, a view of reality and the good life, right? A vision of reality and the good life, right? What is real? And what sort of life is ultimately worth seeking and pursuing, right? And here's, you know, an Epicurean way of life is going to be different from a Stoic way of life. It's going to be different from a Christian way of life, philosophical way of life. Depending on the kind of existential map one commits oneself to. So, for example, for an Epicurean, they are thoroughly materialistic. They're thoroughly atomistic, right? Reality is uh, very thin and one-dimensional. It's only uh, what's made up of matter, right? And they are seeking ataraxia, the sort of state of tranquility tranquility or peace, right? Minimize pain as much as possible, right? That is the good life. So for Stoics, like Cicero, Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, right? Again, they are thoroughgoing materialists. Um, and they're going to be pursuing a life of... Uh, Harmony with um, the sort of principle or order of rationality in the universe. And that's sort of a, what a stoic way of life is going to involve. Now, a Christian way of life, right? A Christian philosophical way of life is going to be Christian precisely because it's shaped by a particular existential map. It's got certain coordinates on it, right? That maybe a stoic or an Epicurean way of life doesn't have those coordinates. Or it maybe foregrounds certain coordinates that that other views of the world uh, don't even have on the sort of the existential map. Or it might say pleasure is not in, a, in and of itself bad as long as it's attached to real human goods and as long as it's properly oriented to God, right? Right. So that's where a Christian philosophical way of life is really going to come into play. It's a, It's an existential map that's shaped by the Christian story, which is going to be filled in by theological doctrine, going to be yeah. filled by theological content, right? So that's where the idea of, a, of, a, of an existential map comes in. That's what sets, for example, a philosophical way of life apart from, say, an athletic way of life hmm. or a musical way of life. So there has to be the, 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 the capacity for reason has to be engaged in some sense in terms of you you assent and commit to the truth of a particular conceptual map of the world, both a vision of reality and a vision of good life. And, but it's not just that, but it certainly is nothing less than that. Then you got to go after it. You got to orient your life around it. You got to structure the everyday rhythms of your life uh, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep uh, around that vision, right? And so that's yeah. where there's more than just mentally assenting to an existential map, but I like the, I like the idea of a map because maps are for navigating things like for navigation, right? I yeah. mean, yeah, we, we go for an existential map because we want to navigate life. Well, I mean, mm. we want to live well. Right. And yeah. so, um, that was the, that was the first condition Coho and Grimm, uh, offer for what sets a philosophical way, way of life apart from saying athletic way of life or um, a musical way of life. You've got to sort of 
commit to a particular vision of reality in the good life. That's just the first of the three, but that's certainly something that makes it uh, distinctively philosophical. Yeah. And that's something that I appreciate, appreciate about the book so much is that I think, you know, I don't want to blow too much smoke, but I think that you've done a good job of incorporating a lot of good research in a way that can be read by a non-academic philosopher, which is like the whole point. So I, I do appreciate that and, and that you've you've brought all these things together to present in, as a whole and saying, hey, come on in, come on in. I wonder, um, I wonder about a Christian who, who may even be antagonistic towards philosophy. Maybe they, they grew up on the King James and they're, they're afraid of vain philosophy, right? Uh, but they are living at, they're living along the grain of reality in a Christian way. Uh, they have a, what, what you would look at their life and say, look, you are living according to a Christian existential map. Would you consider them uh, living along, the, along a Christian philosophy, even unbeknownst to them, even though they wouldn't sign on to that terminology? Or does it need to be an active, um, do you need to take an active role in saying, no, I'm, I'm going to live Christianly, but in a philosophical manner? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd be inclined uh, to say that specifically in line of what Paul is up to in Colossians 2.8, right? Yeah. I actually think far from him warning against living yeah. philosophically, right? Right. He's actually saying, um, make sure you're living in such a way that's directed towards the right kinds of ends mm -hmm. and the right kinds of goals. Right. So uh, pay attention to rival visions of reality in the good life that are vain and full of deceit. Right. That are hollow uh, and and go the other way. Right. Um, commit to a different vision of reality in the good life and order your life around a different existential map. So I, I actually see in what Paul is doing there an injunction to live uh, philosophically according to, not according to the elemental principles of the world, but according to Christ, right? So that according to is really, I think, yeah, that's going to involve living a distinctively Christian philosophical way of life because we're all committing, whether we acknowledge it or not, right, Parker? We're yeah. all committing to a particular existential map and ordering our life around it and structuring our, our daily actions, how we spend our resources. Um, that's just, I think, a feature of, of how God has designed us, right? We, we will always uh, follow to some degree or other um, the existential map we've committed to, whether inchoately or explicitly. Yeah. Um, I think we will inevitably follow that. So I think I would say in that case, yes, uh, they're living philosophically. Um, and, but they would just maybe have some, some hesitation with the word philosophy. And I would just say, I, I don't want to quibble about words. As long as you're committing to an, a, an existential map shaped by the Christian story, but that involves metaphysical content, moral content, ethical content, epistemic content. I mean, there's a lot of philosophical content mm -hmm. to the existential map shaped by the Christian story, according to scripture. I, I don't want to deny that, you know, obviously scripture presents a view of reality and of, of fundamental reality mm -hmm. that we've got to, uh, we've got to think and, 
and chew on and orient our lives to accordingly, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things, right? Amen. He's yeah. kind of the due north, right? And all other coordinates uh, are pointing to him in some way. And yeah. so I want to make sure I'm ordering my life where he is the due north, not pleasure, uh, not money, yeah. not fame. And so, so, um, yeah, I would say you kind of, you can't really opt out of living philosophically. And that's why I say this can, this can come in degrees. And that's mm -hmm. very important to, to, to mention that second tenet of living philosophically Parker is, isn't. So the first would be you commit yourself to an existential map. And living philosophically as a Christian is going to be committing oneself to an existential map that's shaped by the Christian story, mm -hmm. right? So it's going to involve what is real, uh, what is fundamental, uh, what is the good life, how do we live the good life, how do we become truly good and virtuous persons, these sorts of things. The Christian story fills those details out, I believe. And then the second thing is you orient your life, right? You orient your life around it. Uh, so practitioners of a philosophical way of life, uh, their lives will be structured around that existential map, right? So um, they will order their lives according to certain ends, right? So take, for example, the idea of uh, uh, living the athletic way of life, right? Right. To do that, obviously, as you know, I believe you're, 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 you're an athlete, right? Um, wrestler, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Now, now jujitsu, but yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. Mm -hmm. Um, more than just mentally assenting to a particular, um, to a particular way of life and certain goals, right? You, you've got to like get out there mm -hmm. and start training, right? And actually like paying attention to your diet, paying attention to your schedule, paying attention to your training. Uh, it, it's going to engage your life and your actions in a very intimate way, right? But, you know, the athletic way of life, it, it can come in degrees, right? So someone may well be just learning how to play golf, for example. I mean, or maybe just they, they may well start to learn how to wrestle. And, but they're, they're certainly no Parker Sedeke's, right? They're <laughs> not, they're not a wrestling veteran, right? Um, anyway. They're just, they're a novice, right? But they've committed to training. They're, they've committed to a particular way of life. They're more than just mentally assenting to certain ends and outcomes and goals, right? They're actually taking steps. Um, they're living a way of life, mm -hmm. right? It's beginning to seep its way into the rhythms of their, of their, the rhythms of their life, right? So whether you're a novice, a wrestling novice or a wrestling veteran, Right. I would say everybody's living uh, an athletic or a wrestling way of life who's not just assented, but who's actually structuring their life around that vision of a certain set of goals and, and outcomes and um, whatnot. So yeah. that's the idea is um, so, so speaking about a philosophical way of life, right? The freshman in college who's just discovering philosophizing and trying to make sense of the world and Right. They took their intro to metaphysics class. They're just struggling about, you know, they're beginning to think about universals and what is a universal and what is my place in the world and are there natures and what grounds modality and all this cool stuff. Right. But, you know, they're, you know, they're no Jonathan Schaffer or Ted Sider. Right. Um, or they're no Plato or Aristotle for that matter. Right. So 
this can come in degrees, I think. And that's really important because this isn't some sort of like elitist proposal that, mm. you, you know, the philosophical way of life is only for the philosophical veterans who can like um, uh, run philosophical circles around anybody. They kind of, they're so super smart, right? And they've, right, they've been right. researcher for a long time. No, no, no. I want to include the novices as well. If you can live athletically and be a nov- an athletic way of life or a musical way of life and be a beginner, right? I think you can love the philosophical way of life and be a beginner as well. Yeah. There, there's so there's so much here that's so good. I'm trying to, to rein myself in here. Because I, I think about, uh, I know a lot of academic philosophers now through the podcast. And it's been awesome. And I love them. Uh, I love like you guys, right? And I'm, I'm training to become one myself. Though uh, I, I don't think I'll ever be a professor just looking at the, the state of things. But that's fine because my plan B was always my plan A anyways. But. Some of the people I admire most in philosophy, I don't admire in the rest of their lives. Uh, and they would be fine, uh, it, you know, with me saying that. But some, some of the rest of their lives has fallen apart. And it's, they're, they're very um, philosophically astute when it comes to their area of expertise and not uh, in philosophy as a way of life, uh, of living the good life. Uh, d- does that make sense, Dr. Edmund? I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's a it's a broader scope. Like the the philosophy as a way of life is like, I I see it as more of a unified thing, right? Like like you had mentioned earlier, like it's not just being super smart; it's also living well, and um, that's why I just think that this is a an important call. And uh, one thing that I know perturbs a lot of folks is I, I put out a poll, maybe it was just a question on Twitter uh, while I was in Dr. Gould's class. And I said, hey, should your ethics professor be a better person than the general population? Most people are like, well, you should be a good person in virtue of being a person. I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, barring that, should they be a better person for, for having studied ethics? And I, in my head, the ancient way of philosophy as a way of life would, would, would argue yes. If you, you, the ethics prof who has, is well steeped in this stuff, it ought to impact their life and they ought to be a moral exemplar if they're going to be teaching this stuff. Um, so what do you think about that? It seems like the modern distinction is like, no, look, head knowledge, head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? They, they, they don't go together. You can be an amazing, fantastic teacher without being uh, a practitioner of what you're teaching as well. See what I'm getting? Maybe I'm throwing too much spaghetti at the wall here. Well, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Um, and, you know, I don't want to run the risk of like, psychologizing people, you know, uh, in terms of like, you know, talking about some moral failings or, or, you know, we could talk about mine too. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I guess, but your general point is there seems to be, there seems that if we're doing this thing, right. Right. Um, then that is walking in the truth yeah. as John puts it right um it's our lives will look will will tell i mean we'll be able to tell in our lives right and yeah. uh seneca even seneca right the stoic philosopher i love this quote he says this uh he says philosophy tells us how to live not how to talk hmm. and uh i just think that there's there's a lot of wisdom in that remark from 
Seneca, he also says elsewhere about a different way of approaching philosophy that may well be what you're putting your finger on, that he says this in uh, his letters to Lucilius. He says, I think there is no one who has rendered worse service to the human race than those who have learned philosophy as a mercenary trade. Yes, that's good. And I guess it's just, this is just um, an attempt to just step back and do a little bit of meta philosophy in terms of specifically as Christians now, like why do we do what we do? And if we are wanting to orient our lives towards shalom, right, towards a biblical sense of wisdom, uh, being in tune with the world as it is in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to, I think, involve using our intellects with razor sharp clarity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's not going to like, uh, that's not going to hinder the, the good life and living wisely in a biblical sense. I think it will, it can help it, but it's, it involves a lot more than, than just uh, being good at symbolic logic. Uh, And of course, no one's going to disagree with that. But I guess I want to say, uh, you know, is the way that we practice the trade is the way that we do philosophy. uh, Does that, does that communicate that? And, Mm -hmm. and I guess I I just think, um, and again, I don't want to, you know, sit as like an armchair judge here. That's not, that's not my, my, my purpose or my place, but I just think a lot of analytic-minded people learn philosophy as a mercenary trade. Yeah. And I just think there's there's a different way uh, yeah. to consider it, specifically as, as a Christian, but um, a thicker way, an older way, a way that I think is more resonant with a, a biblical view of wisdom. And yeah. I don't think we need to, um, yeah, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Well, and, and that's good. And, and, um, the, the, a lot of my analytic secular friends totally endorse this and, and they, they have no qualms with saying that, that it's a mercenary view. Maybe they would say mercenary sounds weird, but they would say that that concept is what we're getting at. And they just have a different view of philosophy. And they're like, no, that's, it's just not for the good life. It's not for um, being a sage or anything like that. And I used to buy into that more. And now I'm like, well, I, I want to be a sage, whatever that is. Like, I want to be that. I would love to be an exemplar. And it sounds, it's, it's weird, even in theological circles to be like, yeah, I would like to be a, a a moral exemplar. It's like, well, look, look to Christ, look to Christ. But then it's like, well, Paul said, look, follow me as I follow Christ. So I'm not saying like, just look at me, but I would like my life to be so much like Christ's that people could be inspired to also live like Christ. And that's such like a high, scary calling. Um, but so, so, so instead of going abstract and, and I don't want the audience to try and guess that we're, we have someone in mind because we don't, maybe we could just stick with ourselves. Do you think philosophy has made you a better person and a better man? I do. Um, I think humbly I can say that um, being awakened to the pursuit of seeing reality uh, as it is uh, and orienting my will to it has, uh, I think, kept me from pursuing various, as Boethius or Liz Lady Philosophy calls them, sidetracks, right? Mm, Um, I try to illustrate the Christian philosophical way of life in the Christian tradition by talking about Boethius and Lady Philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think 
living philosophically as a Christian has um, made the way of Christ more beautiful and more alluring to me. And it's made other ways, rival ways, uh, rival visions of reality and the good life less alluring. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've actually closed some of those off psychologically to me um, that I just, I don't find them p- appealing anymore. Um, yeah. And so I think there's a, there's a, a change of affections that come with that that come with uh, seeing, uh, seeing reality uh, truly and in its proper light. Uh, what is the summum bonum, as the medievals would put it, and what, what isn't, right? Yeah, right. Boethius does just as much telling us what the summum bonum isn't, right? Power, fortune, pleasure, uh, money. Yeah. And he does telling us what it is, right? It's the, the, the trying God. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, and and I just think that uh, that shouldn't be the exception, um, yeah. unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, um, I I think that's so helpful because you've dedicated your life to this, right? Like you you teach p- other people to do this, like t- you you welcome them into the philosophical world. So I think if you, I think. Uh, Part of philosophy getting a bad rap is uh, the mercenary view and in that view, not being able to point out enough instrumental value to people who say, why should I study it? And it's like, well, you could say it's intrinsically valued because it's kind of fun to figure out puzzles. You know, that's that's kind of cool. But it's like, yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to take out a bunch of student loans to go and study puzzles and then have to go reinvent myself to get a job. It's like, well, no, there's a, a broader picture here. And this also brings up um, a relation I wanted to ask you about between uh, autodidacts, I guess, some, you know, self-learning philosophy on your own in your basement. And, uh, and I say that because I'm in basement surrounded by all the Why does it have to be in the basement? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It doesn't have to be. But, um, you know, in the, in the armchair by yourself versus, um, versus the academy. And I, and I don't mean academy just in like a, um, elitist American or, you know, European Academy, but like the Academy, like Plato's Academy, like, like their old school way of, uh, philosophy as a way of life. People would follow a particular thought leader, you know, the Pythagoreans and the Stoics. And it was, you were like welcomed into a community. You dressed the same way, um, in getting back to philosophy as a way of life. It, do one of those stand out more than the other? Like, um, do we need to, sh- should, should, should someone join a group of philosophers? Does that, does that make sense? Like a camp of school? Well, um, at the very least, I, I think if part of recapturing, at least in part, uh, philosophy as a way of life uh, for Christians would involve one of the... Um, one of these spiritual exercises that actually was a part of philosophy as a way of life in antiquity, even mm-hmm. among non-Christian philosophers, and that is friendship. Um, you know, uh, I would just say uh, pursuing the true and the good and the beautiful in the company of people who are, are united, not just by agreement, but by the spirit of God, right? They share a common bond of the spirit mm-hmm. uh, who are uh, helping each other uh, rightly orient themselves to reality in all of its, you know, God-bathed fullness. Yeah. Um, that is a vital part of 
um, living philosophically, because I don't know about you, but because um, it's easy, it's easy at some point or other to be lured away from the good and the true as it is in Christ. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I say, spiritual friends help kind of, they serve as healthy correctives and preventatives for us to stay tethered and anchored to the structure of reality, to the natural grain of reality, as I put it, right? Mm -hmm. The true, the real, the true, and the good as it is in Christ. So um, when we recognize the communal value of the philosophical life, and that's why I say the church, I'm talking about the church a little bit in the book as well. Yeah. The church is actually um, vital to, I call it a, a, a cradle and a pillar of the philosophical life. Um, it's actually part of God's intent and design that, that the saints of God grow up into intellectual maturity, that they're no longer tossed to and fro, right? But they, they grow up into Christ. And part of that, what that means is they become more intellectually sure-footed and stable, right? They're actually able to lay hold of that, which is truly life. And they're not laying, trying to lay hold of that, which isn't truly life. Right. And I don't know about you, but I think we could share story after story about how in, in the sort of, in the midst of the swells of life, right. Uh, spiritual friendships have been a stabilizing, uh, force in my own life to keep me on the way, right. To keep me, uh, walking firmly in the good way, right. As Jeremiah six says. And, um, so that would be, I think one thing, you know, we're not, I don't see in the near future sort of like opening uh, philosophical schools like there was in Athens, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but philosophical friendship, I don't know if it's a lost art, but it's certainly something that um, I think Christians, we should be uh, leading the charge and modeling yeah. uh, to the philosophical community what it, what it looks like. Um, to walk together, uh, in the way of wisdom. So, yeah, I mean, I guess another thing that I I mentioned the first part of, of the book was, was just trying to introduce people to philosophy as a way of life. Yeah. Right. Um, that involves, you know, committing to an existential map, orienting your life around that existential map, and then engaging in various truth directed practices. Right. Um, and all of this is spelled out uh, in, in the book. But the second part uh, of the book is really, uh, it's designed to try to support what is really a quite an outlandish claim on the surface, right? And, yeah, and I've seen this several times, but you know, when, when you, when, if you were to say to someone, philosophy, living philosophically is one of the most practical ways you could possibly live your life, mm-hmm. right? Immediately, what sort of reaction might you get right and even just test this out it's actually quite comical uh, people give you very quizzical looks people will think you you you, you must be a philosopher because you're so out mm-hmm. of reality right of course something so dry and abstract could have it just couldn't be the case that it's the most practical thing i can devote myself to and i guess i just what i'm trying to do in the second half of the book is is to draw out why it is that both outside the church in the public imagination, as well as inside the church in our public imagination, 
that philosophy is so, perceived as so utterly impractical and irrelevant mm -hmm. to human life. I guess we always see, we always make these kinds of practicality and relevance judgments against a certain normative backdrop, yeah. right? Uh, what sorts of goals are truly worth pursuing and which aren't? Yeah. And I just, there's a lot of philosophical content and assumptions packed into what I call practicality questions. And you can tell this is all from like teaching, um, mm -hmm. just getting these questions over and over in class and, and in the church as well. Right. Um, what does philosophy have to do with my life? It seems so out of touch and impractical. And so the second half really is a kind of, a, it's kind of defense um, or a plea to uh, understand that philosophy, when it's done in this sort of more working class, blue collar type of way, where it's, it's ordering every, everything you do, right? How you spend your money how you die, right? Socrates yeah. was doing philosophy on his deathbed by drinking hemlock, right? He says there are more important things in human life like standing and seeking truth, standing for the truth and, and holding fast to it as well as justice. Hmm. There are more important things like that than just maintaining a pulse. And hmm. Socrates basically declared that till his last breath. Mm -hmm. And that's living philosophically. Um, so I just, I'm trying to, in the second half of the book, trying to make a plea to Christians in particular involving scripture and the Christian tradition, the wider Christian tradition, as well as philosophy itself, that, um, philosophy can be one of the most practical activities you can devote yourself to. Right. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what you mean by an activities being practical. And here's where I think many of us, Christians included, are really in the grip of an exceedingly thin and narrow view of what, what makes an activity relevant to human life or practical to human life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. And I think, I think it's hard to diagnose where this stuff comes from. Um, part of it in my head is, uh, man, our great, our great, uh, philosophers the american philosophers are like jonathan edwards and then everyone forgets about that and then it's like the pragmatists that those are our guys those are the americans and it's like well, yeah that's kind of who we are we're kind of like hey who cares don't don't tell me about the system just tell me what get you know show me when it gets done and uh i i i did appreciate that in the second half and the the existential ailments like folks at home we we are covering so such a little portion of the book so you got to go get the book uh, you can find the link in the description. If you get it from there, you'll you'll support this podcast as well. So definitely check it out because it's a, a a broader, richer picture than we've been able to cover here on this podcast. But um, Doctor, one thing I, I I really appreciate about you, I I noticed first in my theology degrees was um, you're not willing to let the old goods go. You're not willing to, like there's these old treasures in our tradition, and in theology we call it theological retrieval. Here, um, you're calling it, you know, recapturing it. But it's the same mentality that you have of saying, no, there's goods back there. And I, I, I'm not letting them go. But, but you don't just bring us all back and say, now we have to go back and just stay here. You're also a philosopher. So you're also like, you, you update things, at least, at least the terminology. And you're bringing stuff in from, from cutting edge modern work in order to bolster what our forefathers left us. And so, man, I just appreciate that about you. That's like, Thanks, Parker. 
Does that sound like a character? Does that sound fair? Because I'm thinking of your immensity stuff where I'm like, I, I had never heard of immensity before you. And it's like, why didn't I? That's such a good word. That's such a good doctrine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the idea of retrieval is such a multifaceted idea. I think there are um, ways that it's done well and ways that it's done in a rather flat footed. Yes maybe one dimensional way that I, uh-huh. I, I try to avoid myself and my own work. I mean, that's just because there's been a conversation going on for a long time about fundamental reality, about what goals are ultimately worth seeking, what goods are ultimately worth seeking in human life, what makes a, a human life good, mm-hmm. what, is, what is the virtuous life, these kinds of things. There's been a conversation going on for a really long time. And I guess I just... I just want to encourage, you know, listeners, take time just to listen to that conversation first. Mm-hmm. Um, put your ear down to that conversation. Um, learn the moves, learn the responses. Um, mm. You may well find that there is a treasure trove of wisdom that can still speak uh, today to our contemporary situation. And and I, I think for me, one of the one of the clearest examples of that in the book is uh, the example of the consolation of philosophy, just right. looking at Boethius's own life and his life circumstances and um, the kind of uh, existential ailments that he was afflicted with uh, and Lady Philosophy was diagnosing these ailments in his own life. It's, turns out, Parker, it's, they're surprisingly modern. Um, yeah. His sort of existential loss of sight and vision, he's, he's, he's lost sight of, he's forgotten. Of uh, the true structure and nature of reality and his own self. He's forgotten what the sumum bonum is, right? He's, um, he's suffering from a kind of lethargy or, or, uh, acedia. He's, he's, uh, he's unresponsive to reality as it truly is. And yeah. boy, I mean, talk about a diagnosis. Uh, those are on the modern medical chart too. Right. And, and that's, uh, we are so flooded with, uh, visual noise that it's so easy to just become unresponsive and, and to, to miss reality as it truly is. We can see, but not truly see as yeah. the scriptures put it, right? We can hear, but not truly hear. So, um, I think the philosophical life is one that just strives to be properly attuned to what is and what truly ought to be. And I, I just, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult today to be attuned in that sort of way. There are just other frequencies that are very loud and very powerful that counteract um, our ability to see the world as it truly is and to live accordingly to it. So the philosophical life turns out can be very therapeutic for even the modern person. Yeah. Um, so I guess keeping an ear to the, to the conversation, there, there's a lot back there that you just want to kind of skip over quickly. Um, I don't want to like, uh, valorize or glamorize the Christian tradition or even the ancient tradition, but there's just so much there that, um, is just rich and still speaks today that just is waiting to be mined and applied. And there are just excellent people doing work on this today that I just wish, uh, more people would, would be aware of. So this is, again, the book is for beginners. It's designed for people who are just getting their philosophical feet wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for, thank you for uh, those, those kind words.
Yeah, man, definitely. And I have a I have a project in in public facing philosophy called Park Notes. It's a different channel. And I constantly get people saying, How do where where do I start? Where do I start? How do I get into philosophy? Because I mentioned that I'm a everyone has a philosophical theme that I'm tricking people in. I talk about notebooks and stuff, but I, I lure them into a philosophical doctrine or uh, uh, tenant or teaching. And so I'm, I'm happy to be able to commend this book to them. Um, but also, if you're, a, if you're a grad student listening, which many of you are, this book's for you too. And there's plenty of scripture in here that you're backing your, your stuff up with as well. So it's like a, it's a treat for the soul as well as like a, a call to a certain way of thinking about yourself as a philosopher or um, if you're a theologian, like living this way. So I, I do commend it to uh, to a broad range of folks. And uh, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Uh, Parker. Hey, it's great to be with you. Um, thanks for having me back on. Appreciate Definitely. that. Definitely. Yep. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.